In this series, we interview game changers from around the globe about digital ethics, online activism and social media. We get to know them, their stories and how they have harnessed one of the greatest phenomenons of our time. A little warning, most of our episodes are for adult ears only with frequent droppage of the F-bomb. I'm Roisin Bevan. And I'm Daisy Grant. And this is Harness. The poem is a house. You need to find different ways in which to enter the house. Otherwise, you really, you forget that it's an entire landscape that has more than one entry. Mahogany L. Brown is a writer, poet, educator and activist based in Brooklyn. Her beautiful poems made a huge impact on Roisin when she was visiting New York last year, compelling us to contact her for this podcast. Here is a clip of the poem Roisin saw performed by Mahogany called Rainbow of Armour. I ain't smiling today. Just because you asked nicely or because you asked at all, in fact. Have you ever heard someone ask a rainbow to bow? And no, my waist ain't always snatched like that. And sometimes it is, and sometimes I eat everything in the fridge, save the butter for biscuits for breakfast, the next day let my whole spirit rise. Think of what it means to be smoke. Sometimes I am smoke. Sometimes I smoke, and just like that, I'm a new body in a body. I am mine and no one else's. Mahogany's relationship with the internet and social media has contributed to both her artistic creativity and connections. We discuss the impact of the digital realm in her life within poetry, activism and motherhood. In 2010, she released a beautiful compilation of poems called Dear Twitter, love letters hashed out online in 140 characters or less. A highly lauded piece of work which allowed her to shake up her process and utilise boundaries in order to spark creativity. In this episode, we talk about bravery and guts. Mahogany has been incredibly bold and courageous throughout her life, from moving across the country alone with her two-year-old to getting up on stage for the first time despite being told her poems weren't good enough. This bold energy translates in her performances and she can't help but make an impact. We discuss blackness, taking up space as a black woman, and how she preserves her energy to lift up other women. Mahogany is brilliantly gentle and full of fire at the same time. At the end of our discussion, she graciously performs for us. We know you'll enjoy it as much as we did. Her books Woke Baby, Dear Twitter and Black Girl Magic are all available online. You can also find her work on Spotify. This is Mahogany L. Brown. I was in Brooklyn last year and I was lucky enough to see you host a Poetry Slam evening. And I know I'm not going to say this right already at the Nurekin. Yeah, New Yorkian. New Yorkian. I was literally <laughs> laughed at by my uh, New Yorkian family member because she was like, the New Yorkian? She was like, no, babe, no. Um, <laughs> Love it. But it was, it was an amazing, an amazing night, like the, the highlight of mine and my wife's holiday. Since I've been researching you, I've come to discover that being a poet is only one of the many, many strings to your bow. So I'm interested, how do you describe yourself and the work that you do? I am a writer. I am an organizer. I am an educator and a curator. So me hosting, uh, that is very much a part of the poetry world for me because as a touring poet, I found that there were few spaces that, you know, the, the energy could be kept alive. It relied on what was happening with the feature poet or a poem. And sometimes you never know what, you know, what will happen and energy can be deterred and it can get very, you know, volatile. It can get very sad. It can also be super happy. So 
I wanted to make sure that when I was curating a space and hosting a space, that I was um, preserving the uh, the energy within a community that I wanted to keep returning, knowing that you know I would hold them safe. Um, this space was safe. This space was sacred. We would we would laugh. We would cry. We would think, but we would also be accountable towards each other um, for the energy we brought in the room. So that that's really my. I think my focus, um, but it's all, it always comes back, back to poems for me. Mm. Well, it very much felt like a sacred space. Like it, it felt like an honor to sort of witness it. It was like you could feel that this community, it meant so much to the regulars and you could sort of see the looks on the faces of the people who this was their first time. And then you absolutely held people in the palm of your hand. It was a, a brilliant, brilliant night. Thank you. So how did you find yourself in Brooklyn? and Why did you stay? I came to New York City for a summer internship in uh, August 1999 and within three weeks received a job offer at a hip-hop publication. That is um, so cool. And I just decided I'm, I'm just going to do it. I was in school at that point majoring in journalism and here I had the opportunity to be a journalist and I just thought, go ahead, go for it, you know. Um, I had a daughter. Uh, my daughter was two at that time and... <laughs> I mean, even now when I tell people the story, they're like, so you just went to New York City where you knew no one with a two-year-old. And I said, yeah. That's incredible. What gave you the strength to to know you could do it? I didn't know I could do it, but I knew that if it didn't work, you know, I could go back to Oakland, California. I could go back to, you know, working as a temp. I had a skill set that would not leave me stranded. Mm -hmm. And I had family I could return to, but I knew that I would never get a chance like that not at least, not quite like that again, where I was given um, a proper salary, health insurance. They um, helped me move there, and the people I was working with introduced me to the woman who would babysit my daughter for three years thereafter. It felt like if it doesn't work, fine, but like here are all the ways in which it can work if you just try. And all the security was kind of there, and you were able to embrace it. That's amazing. Yeah. I was really lucky. I do not take it for granted at all. But obviously you have guts as well. I mean, that takes that takes a lot. Daisy and I, as I said before, we're, we're Australian and we've moved to, to London, I think, unless you're in a city like London or New York where, you know, the intensity of those cities sometimes, and I can't imagine having a toddler Absolutely. in those spaces trying to navigate who you are and where the, what this place is. That's, that's yeah. huge. Had you already discovered your love of poetry at that point? At that point, funny enough, I had written poetry, not really practiced it, but I was writing it and I performed it and it had aired on HBO with um, a poetry troupe that used erotic poetry to have conversations about HIV awareness and um, STD prevention. So I... I'd had, you know, I dabbled in it, but like writing was really my focus. Mm. And when I got to New York, I wasn't doing poetry at all. Well, is it Um, true that you were discouraged, like actively discouraged from writing poetry in high school? For sure. Yeah. I, uh, we had to write our response to Dante's Inferno Mm. and I wrote a response and it was, what was it? Uh, it was honors English. And, uh, the teacher, bless her heart was like, this is, this is unacceptable. This is not a poem. Oh. And I was like, oh, but, you know, you said do the remix to it, basically. And so my remix was using dialect from, you know, the neighborhood from which I, I came from. 
And she was like, Mm-mm, now you need to go back and do it over if you want to, if you want to grade for this. Oh my God. And so I was like, oh, okay, cool. I quit. Yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> like, ah, yeah. I quit. <laughs> so I didn't return to it until my daughter was one, actually. So that was what I was 15 wow. and I didn't return to it for about six, seven years. Wow. Was it, was it to do with like the birth of your daughter that made you kind of get back into it? Was, was, did that kind of connect? <sighs> Yeah, I think um, I saw the movie Love Jones and I had never seen anyone looking like me doing poems, right? I was like, oh, that they're, 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 we are here, right? And, and of this age group. And then I, I went to an open mic. That was my first time ever going to an open mic in real life and mm. in real time. And I thought, cool, uh, I think I want to try this. And my aunt actually dared me to do it. But I mean, it didn't take much, you know, I said, <laughs> sure, let's just do it. Absolutely. And so we, we both were supposed to write a piece because she was an actress um, doing things at like the local repertory theater and, uh, and, su- and a super inspiration. She was always very performative. So next thing I know, she did not have her poem ready, <laughs> um, but I did. The classic trick. <laughs> yeah, she got me. But what's funny is I received a standing ovation mm. and I was like, oh, I want to do this again. Yeah. So, you know, of course there was something that was totally, uh, you know, responding to like the acceptance. Mm. But there was also this thing that um, made me feel like, People were actually listening to me and my voice was valid. And, and that just fed something in me that I did not know I was hungry for. Um, and I never stopped writing since. That was... Can you remember what that poem was about? Oh my God, it was so bad. It was <laughs> about someone just trying to like, like catcalling, yes. right? And how I was uninterested because I was so in love. And what's funny is the reason that I had started writing poems is not necessarily because I was so in love. It's because I was so heartbreaking from that love. Yeah. But I didn't know how to. I didn't know I had permission to write that just yet. So as, as the years have evolved and technology has evolved, poetry has gone through so many different evolutions, and mm-hmm. in many ways is such an old form. I feel as someone who doesn't write poetry but observes it and loves to observe it, that it there seems to to be this sort of reawakening in digital spaces and access to it and mm-hmm. uh, maybe a platform for lots of people to have their voice through poetry, through social media. And I'm just wondering if your engagement with social media or um, the advent of social media, how that either has influenced your work or, or the way that you put it out to the world. Yeah, I think it has. Honestly, there were times where I felt um, – a little bit of boredom when it came to process. And I started using these spaces online to make new forms of poetry. So Twitter poems happen. I made an entire book of poems Mm. via tweet Mm. tweets. And um, I think also the reason people are, are, it's like becoming this, this wildfire response is that um, our poets, unless they traveled, and were introduced to you through your classroom. It was, uh, you know, it was majority of it was regional. And so now you have this global community online, this literary global community, and we're celebrating poets from different spaces everywhere. Like online, it's it just, it's everywhere. You have 
access that you never had before. So me going to London for the first time in 2002, a lot of people didn't realize, oh, you can you can do that with your poems. Your poems can can go that far. They, it has that that much wingspan. Um, and that all that happened via MySpace, you know, like that happened via an introduction on MySpace. So I, it, it's really amazing to think like, how would we have gotten there and met the people who were also doing that kind of work had it not been for this online community? It would have been very, very difficult because you, you never know, you know, we went all the way to Baltimore from Brooklyn in one night. So we drove for three and a half hours just to find out the venue had been closed for two weeks. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. have those those moments where you're like, if the community isn't engaging each other, yeah, you could just find a dead end. Yeah. And it's just and impossible to up. know they exist unless there is a space for them to show themselves. Correct. Mm, yeah, Correct. completely. I mean, I'm fascinated by, as you said, you wrote a book of poetry called Dear Twitter, Love Letters Hashed Out Online. Can you tell and us? 140 characters or less. I mean, that is genius. That's when it was 140 characters. So there's that. So they messed up my whole marketing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wrote that in 2010, didn't you? What what compelled you to, to write that book? Like I said, I was just in a, a space where, you know, I had, I had participated in 30 poems in 30 days. I have participated in writing workshops. I have participated in slams. And I was writing from a space where, you know, you, you write for the, you write towards the energy and you're not really given a lot of process techniques in those performance spaces, um, which is something that, you know, me and Jive co-founded the Brooklyn Poetry Slam. And now that's like our, our major focus is, okay, we're going to look at process and performance. We're going to look at community engagement and activism. We're going to look at accountability and, and literary um, uh, dexterity. So we're asking them to show up both on the page, the stage, and in the streets. And what does that look like? And it really requires us to, to constantly learn as well. So because I didn't have that kind of uh, rigor around uh, my own writing at that point. To come to terms with like Twitter as like the competition, you know, like the hunger, like I have to respond every day mm. to this blank space. And how do, I, how do I create a poem where there is none? How do I create a poem that is lush and full and, and has body and weight and engages and cannot take up more than 140 characters. How do you do that? So like mm -hmm. that became, you know, a testament to um, just trying to rise to the occasion. And you have people praising you like Touré and he's saying Mahogany L. Brown has her own style of tweeting, her own unique Twitter voice. She could talk about being her and still make it universal. And that's exactly yes. it. Like you managed to do that in those 140 characters and those blank spaces. And that's incredible. It is incredible. Um, I think it's the theatre company over here called Deviate where they, mm -hmm. they're a devised theatre company. And it, it just as you were speaking, it reminds me of their ethos where they actually Actually, they, they talk about creativity. There being more room for creativity sometimes mm -hmm. when you have more boundaries rather than less. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, you know, what the boundary of having 140 characters for a poet is, is incredible, but it seems that the creativity has festered so much through those boundaries. It's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny, right, because if we think about it, it's almost the exact opposite of how I was introduced to poetry. Instead of my teacher saying, 
this is how you create a poem or respond. Like the remix needs to have this many lines and this many syllables and these images and these metaphors instead of giving me a rubric that I can mm. then start challenging myself with. She just mm. said it wasn't good. Mm. She's like, no, this is wrong. And that's where the free form poem really resonates because you have so many marginalized and silenced voices being told that their voice is not valid. So I don't knock the free form. I think it's helpful and it's necessary, but I do recognize that there comes a time if you have been writing for this many years or this long or this many poems that you then have to start injecting your writing space with these different obstacles so that you can arrive to the poem in a different way, so that you can enter the poem through a different door. The poem is a house. If we always walk through the same door of the house, you start to forget that there are windows. You start to forget that there are, is a garage and an attic. You know, there's a, there's a roof, like, can you come down the chimney? You need to find different ways in which to enter the house. Otherwise you really, you forget that it's an entire um, landscape that has more than one entry. I am blown away by that analogy. Daisy, did I not tell you that she was fucking cool? I'm like, that is, <laughs> that's a fucking incredible analogy. I love that. That's oh, going to stick you. with me, Mahogany. I All love right. That. Honestly, that was Yay. wicked. No, that's really fucking cool. <laughs> On like another subject as well, um, you are an activist and your yes. activism does bleed into all of the work that you do. And how do you feel that social media informs activism today? And also because you were talking about being there on the streets and then also on the on social media, you know, you've got to go out and be right. there in all of these different places, right? How do we transfer right. it? Well, it, it really depends on the artist personally. I feel like I'm a communal artist and that is my, it is an obligation. My art is an obligation that, that I want to serve the community and a privilege, quite honestly, because I, I come from this community. I have survived many, many spaces because I know um, what I've been taught in these communities. And so I, I understand walking into these spaces that I want my work to say the thing that folks can ignore because they don't have to live or survive it. And I've been afforded to walk into this space because, you know, I got that little stamp from the MFA program or I ran this, you know, worldwide uh, legendary historical space for 13 years. Like I've done the thing that most male counterparts have never done. Yeah. Um, and so I'm allowed into the spaces and I decided what I'm going to do with my time is, is make room for others to come in. And if they can't come in, at least their stories are going to come in. Like you will not ignore them. Mm. Um, not all, not all folks are like that. They're like, you know, I just want to write about flowers and that's dope. Flowers are great, but sometimes, <laughs> you know, some people are like, I want about, a, I want to write about how the flowers are political and, and there needs to be space for all of that. If we say there is only room for one or the other, then I don't trust you. I don't trust mm. you with your poems. Mm. I don't trust you as a citizen. And I damn sure don't trust you with my life. And I feel like this work is a part of, you know, our actual breathing. Mm. This is helping us. <laughs> this is helping us survive the Trumptonians. Uh, this is helping us survive the dictatorship. This is helping us. Yeah, it's not everything. It's not the only, but this is a supplement. This is a mm. bomb so that we can put that armor back on and go back out and really like help change the policies and help change the teaching um, materials and help change the hiring practices mm -hmm. and the tax breaks. Like those things, 
they all don't they don't come to everyone so easily. Mm-hmm. We all don't have access to that kind of thinking. But art is proven to not only uh, sustain us, but also heal us. And if we use that art that is healing and sustaining as also a way of um, teaching folks what's going on around them and that they actually do have voice, um, then we can be advocates for, for our actual communities and, and change not only for today, but you know, for our children tomorrow. Absolutely. Mm. Your words are so profound and it's um, very much reminding me of Patricia Smith's poem, uh, What's It Like mm. to Be a Black Girl, for those of you who mm. aren't, which is acts mm. as a forward in the Breakbeat Poets Volume mm-hmm. 2, Black Girl Magic, which is obviously curated by you and then features your yes. incredible poem of the same name. Um, and mm-hmm. I just want to read a, a short extract, which I think is is touching on, on what you say um, from Patricia's um, words there, if I, if I may. I flipped channels searching American faces, listening to American conversations, peeking into American homes. Of course, I never found a black girl. No voices sounded like mine, so every plummet and rise in my song was wrong somehow. No faces looked like mine, and I despised the mirror for its inability to utter the lies I needed to hear. In the world I was being taught was the right one. No streets, no neighborhoods, no schools, no mothers looked anything like mine. Yes. And that very much feels like what you're saying. And I'm, and I'm fascinated if you think social media, this digital uprising, mm. what does that do in terms of being or feeling seen for black girls? Mm. Well, first, Patricia Smith is holy. And uh, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's that. Like she is by far um, a blueprint for writers of my generation and those to come. I teach her every workshop I get because um, the first workshop I was in, she she led that workshop. My first Kave Kana workshop, she facilitated and it changed the trajectory of my life. Wow. So when I think of Patricia and that forward, that, that mm. forward that you could have tattooed really on any part of your body and be good for forever, you'd be protected for always. What, what she's actually offering us, uh, those of us who don't, you know, who have the benefit of not experiencing such an othering, mm. she's offering some true, like, not just grace, but like the gift of seeing. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the ideas that you can see yourself mm. and align yourself in a movement that actually you you, you may never has felt that before. So it's like, I sympathize, but how do I empathize with something I've never, you know, grappled with? And like, I think she just gives such a, such a gracious offering um, in, in that statement, in that, in that forward. Mm. Um, when I look at her work, even now within the last couple of years, she's really been, you know, heralded and it, it feels all, all it kind of feels late. <laughs> it feels like catch up, everybody. Like yeah, we've been yeah, yeah. hollering how amazing she is. But I think a lot of that has to do with online as well, right? You have her teaching not just workshops for Kave, not just um MFA programs in I think Nevada, not just um writing programs in Staten Island. She she goes everywhere with her work. Mm. every single place like it is not new mm. however she's now been like you know she's gone viral yeah. this, this is a woman who's on mtv doing a poem all right 
she was on HBO Deaf Poetry, if I'm correct. Like she's been on TV and still like, because we have such a, um, you know, amnesia, a quick turnover with our memory, it's really the the online community that is uh, constantly keeping these these uh, pillars in the conversation because she's done the work. She's done the work and she's allowed me to do that work. It's not like I have to recreate the will. It's that I fortify my understanding. That's the foundation that I'm working from. And this idea of, you know, growing up and experiencing the world, never seeing yourself reflected back to you. Do you mm-hmm. think that that is changing for young black women now? And at I what do. pace? I don't know what pace yet, but I do believe that it is changing. We have so many views and faces of um, black woman voices, mm-hmm. young black woman voices, young black feminist voices that you can't turn away anymore. We have, like, we had one show, right? Mm-hmm. We had that one show and it was like, oh, yay. All right. 227 went off. So now what's the next show? Like you had one at a time type of mm-hmm. things. And now it's, it's more spread out. It's, it's feels like it's growing. It feels like there's more room. I still think people are responding to a shtick. I think that they are still hiring what they think looks like you know, an acceptable black woman face. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that also can change. I think that uh, the Viola Davises and the Kerry Washingtons and the Angela Bassett's and the Cecily Tyson's and the Ava DuVernay's and the Oprah Winfrey's and the Serena Williams will make it so. We'll, We'll keep it so that we remember all kinds of black women and young brown uh, and black teenage girls coming up, like they all have a space. If uh, you're a young black girl and on your TV screen, there are no black women, but you go to your Instagram feed and it's full of these incredible women, this online community, if you had had it, if if we had had it for different Mm -hmm. reasons at 15, maybe it would have been the one thing to boost us. I suppose I'm interested if you were 15 and had Instagram, would that have made you feel I think I'm really lucky I think I'm really lucky sorry to cut you off but I think I'm really lucky that I didn't have it I think now as a grown-up it Mm. is terribly difficult and I can only imagine young people having to grapple with all of that anxiety and emotion on accept on being accepted right Mm. but what I do know that they have differently which has which is a part of their toolkit is that they have the verbiage and the language to articulate these things. Absolutely. I didn't I didn't have that at 15. I wasn't talking about uh, transphobia and misogyny, mm. all right? Like, I didn't have those tools to talk about the oppressions that were affecting me. Um, and and, and, and I, I, I think that it's, it, it's with the times. If we had it before, I think it, it would have been a bust because I don't, I don't know that people were... We're ready. Really being taught. Right. Yeah. We weren't yeah. really being taught that. We didn't know, like I said, I didn't know anything about feminism until I was 21. Yes. Did not know. Yeah. Had no idea. Mm-hmm. I knew what colorism was because I experienced it, but I didn't know I had a name. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. I knew what I knew what it meant when people called me a tomboy and didn't want to play basketball with me. I knew what that meant. Like, but I didn't know it had a name. Mm-hmm. So to know now that the reason that we went, we endured all of that was to create the content and the language and the understanding and the theory that these young people have accessibility to now. 
Wow, that's a really that's really interesting. Such a good point because yeah, that language is there, and yeah. with that representation as well. I just wanted to ask what your thoughts were on the celebration versus fetishization of blackness Mm -hmm. on social media, particularly by people who aren't black. I don't think that the online space is the first time that the fetishization Mm. happened. I think that that has always been. I think people now are trying to, you know, say I'm celebrating it rather than appropriating it. Mm. And just call it what it is you it's you're appropriating right you will be more famous for my attributes and things that i have been made fun of all of my life yes we have like Um, ariana grande you know mm -hmm, i'm gonna drop her in mm -hmm. she's doing it at the moment a bit she's been accused of blackfishing a lot you know, with mm-hmm, her, mm-hmm. she's got visibly kind of darker skin in her videos. Mm-hmm. She's kind of appropriating a certain type of music and, you know, singing about getting a fucking weave. You know, she's just bought her hair and it's like, that's not yours. Uh, you can't pick and choose, right? The elements that you Does that want piss to you benefit off? from. That you like, the elements that you like. Um, it used to make me mad because I thought it's not fair. <laughs> you know, we've been, we've been laughed at for so long black women have been laughed at for so long and made fun of and and to like be othered and then all of a sudden it's in style you go from like oh look at your butt it's so big to oh my god I'm gonna you know get butt injections Mm. I think all of that personally is a distraction I had to like step off of it when people are getting applauded for it I just can't give it any more energy because I recognize if I come for these people What I'm actually doing is um, not making enough space for the joy of the actual black and brown people that are here right now. Like I'm, as Maxine Water says, reclaiming my time. And I'm also like, this is a space for joy for for how we exist. And Mm. it means much more to me instead of going for these people constantly to... um, celebrate the women that have been doing it that you know that that is your natural aesthetic I'm going to clap for you I'm going to say you look good sis Mm. I see you and and hope that some of that um some of that takes that you know takes the danger the weight off of it because I don't think the danger will leave I mean at the end of the day it it feels like you you know they're trying to render you invisible Mm. um Mm. and we're coming from a space of shadowing already so to know that Kardashians are, uh, you know, celebrated for looking like, you know, Rihanna and Beyonce and Amber Rose and like all the things when you're saying, oh, these girls are nasty and now you look just like them. Yeah. I know that that's some mean girl tactics. You say the thing about the person and you make fun of it because you really, you wish you had it naturally. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not going to ever, you know, take down another woman um, for, you know, for being her, her beautiful self. And when I see other women do it, I'm just like, come on, sis, you know, this is a distraction. This is, this is high school one-on-one. Oh my God. I absolutely (laughs) love that perspective that there's no point in wasting your time and your energy on dragging Mm -hmm. someone down when you can just lift someone else up. Like that's brilliant. I absolutely love that. I think one of the things that you very much get the sense of when you're navigating your online spaces, your Instagram, your Twitter is that you get this sense that there's a lot of joy through what you're putting out into the world, what you're putting into these online spaces. And, and I, I, 
absolutely see that through line. We're so glad to have talked to you today. And if we ever get the chance to, uh, if we're in New York again or we're in America and we can see you or if you're in London and you've got an event, we'll be there. We'll be first to buy the tickets. Yes. (laughs) Um, And we're we're really genuinely moved by the work that you do. and, And we would be very, very grateful if you could read us a poem. Okay. I had to dig up something. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me, Nina Simone. Today I am a black woman in America and I am singing a melody written lullaby. It sounds like the gentrification of a Brooklyn stoop, the rent raised three times my wages, the bodega and lime tree mat burned down on the corner, the people on each corner, each lock and key of their chromosomes, a note of inquiry on their tongue. Today, I am a black woman in a hopeless state. I will apply for financial aid and food stamps with the same mouth I spit poems from. I will ask the angels of a creative God to lessen the blows and I will beg for forgiveness when I curse the rising sun today. I am a black woman in a body of coal. I am always burning and no one knows my name. I am a nameless fury. I am a blues scratch from the throat of Miss Nina. I am always angry. I am always a bumble hive of hello. I love like this too loudly. My neighbors think I am an unforgiving bitter. Sometimes I think my neighbors are right. Most times I think my neighbors are nosy. But today I am a cold country, a storm brewing, a heat wave of a woman wearing red pumps to the funeral of of her ex-lovers today. I am a woman, a brown and black and brew woman dreaming of a freedom today. I am a mother and my country is burning. I forgot how to flee from such a flamboyant backdraft. I'm too in awe of how beautiful I look on fire. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for talking to us. We are absolutely honoured. We can't wait to watch uh, your work and uh, what you've got coming up next and just keep following you and just soaking up all your joy and loveliness. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Harness. It would really help us if you could like, review, share, subscribe, follow, all that magical stuff. You know what to do. One more thing. We are proud friends of Rafiki Moema and the Carly Ryan Foundation. Both charities work tirelessly to help protect young people from harm and suffering. Support us by following the work of these amazing charities and, of course, each of the incredible guests we've had on the show. We'll include links in the show notes. Thanks for listening.